My name is William Corliss and this is the Workplace Podcast. Brought to you in association with Yellowwood, providers of executive coaching, corporate training and facilitation. Your external learning and development partner. Each week we focus on a different aspect of the workplace. We hear from guest speakers who will be subject matter experts, who I believe are incredibly talented at what they do. These experts will give you a different perspective and insight to work life, with the aim of empowering you to take a different path to success in all aspects of work life. These perspectives will include career and personal success, leadership, high performance teams, and creating a better work life culture in your organization. Yellowwood, take a different path to success with your career, team, and organization. Welcome to the Workplace Podcast. Our topic today is organizational culture and climate pre and post pandemic. Our guest today, I'm glad to announce, is Neil Walsh. Neil is a professor of organization psychology at the University of San Francisco's School of Management. His principal area of research is the role of virtue and morality, or the lack thereof, in organizations. Specifically, the presence of courage and cowardice within organizational life. His work explores the psychological mechanisms and consequences of virtuous behavior as part of occupational roles. By focusing on high-risk occupations such as ordnance disposal, private military contracting and air traffic control, Neil attempts to develop greater insight into how workers construct and enact virtuous behavior in the workplace. So Neil Walsh, very welcome to the Workplace Podcast. Thank you so much for having me, I'm happy to be here. So Neil, we were having a good belly laugh beforehand because we used to sit beside each other in school. We do, we have history I'm afraid, don't we? Yes, and you were showing me a scar on your yeah, finger. I have, I have a scar to bear from, uh, I believe, uh, third year, I think it was German class, where uh, we got into an argument and uh, my finger came out the worst as it got smashed between two desks. You'll probably still say it was an accident. It felt pretty malicious, I'll be honest with you. But uh, uh, it's nice to know I carry you with me everywhere, really. Yeah. That is great. And I actually forgot a lot of those stories there. So it was great to have that laugh beforehand. But... We are focused on a very serious topic today. And our topic uh, today in terms of organizational culture and climate pre and post pandemic, what are your thoughts, Neil, in terms of organizational culture in the first place? Because I know you're a big believer, as we said before, in evidence-based management. Yeah, it's it's been an interesting, it's been a sobering period of time, actually, uh, the pandemic, because um, when you look at culture, I think in somewhere like, California, somewhere like Silicon Valley specifically, which tends to take its, uh, the rest of the country tends to take its temperature and see where it's going. You've had this explosion in the last few years of uh, like a hyperculture where you've got your um, unicorn startups, your, your, you know, your Silicon Valley, big five, big seven, these enormous behemoths of companies that have culture front and center. Um, and they fly very much as a flag. And whether this is uh, Google or you know subsidiaries or YouTube or Waymo, or you've got uh, what tend to be more millennial focused startups, be it ride sharing or even FinTech, or right now the cryptocurrency um, startup movement is just phenomenal over here. Everyone has still has this language of culture front and center. Um, I've always been very skeptical, slightly suspicious about how much companies wear culture on their sleeves. Um, for some, there's a degree of authenticity to it. They like to think, well, this is who we are, and accordingly, these are the kind of people we want to attract. But the reality is the vast majority of companies use culture as a signifier. It's a, a very convenient mechanism that taps into what people think a company is about. And of course, you never really know what it's like until you're actually inside it. But as a recruitment mechanism, cultures become front and center. And there are arguments about value-driven cultures and you know process-driven cultures and results-based culture. I think the word culture is the problem in itself. We've, we've spent so little time pulling apart what it actually means. Um, mm -hmm. And that could become a two-hour conversation all by itself. The, the, the most helpful way, I think, for understanding this, and probably for your listeners as well, is to think of culture in behavioral senses. It's, it's what we do around here. It's the behaviors that are normalized, that are accepted, that are encouraged, that are, are, are maybe are punished. Uh, and as such, it's the behavioral indicators that we see in cultural life. 
that's why it's such an interesting time. Because if you look at it as a behavioral point of view, all the things that people could see and could see others doing and represent as culture, that opportunity is gone. Uh, pandemically, everybody's working from sheds. Everyone's working from apartments. Uh, you know, I've, I've conference calls with people who are hiding under duvets to hide the mess behind them. Uh, and accordingly, it's changed what you can see as regards an organizational's culture. I, I was telling you before, really, the amount of conversations I've had and calls I've gotten for people saying, like, how do you develop culture? How do you put a stamp on culture? How do you communicate culture when you don't have presenteeism, when you can't be in a physical space? is, is phenomenal. So we have this collective way of working, the collective way of thinking. So this is what we're thinking, what culture might be. Am I true in saying that? Yeah. Yeah. And we have people then, like, can you really measure what culture is? Probably not if you can't, can't put your finger on it. Yeah. You're right. And then we have people then who are in different, you were saying, like working from home, working from sheds. We've all these different things. So is it, is it that the culture was never really there in the first place or was it that it's just been fragmented by COVID? That's a totally fair point. I, I think to say culture was never there isn't really right. I mean, there's sort of a rule of thumb almost. The, the more a company touts its culture and rests its values on its culture, uh, the more suspicious I've tended to be in the past. I mean, I've been in big box, massive companies, you know, silicon startups, Um and there's more culture in yogurt than there is in some of these companies because what's consistent about what they do or how it feels in the place is quite miserable. Um, but that also is true. And, you know, I think the big sobriety I had is I've worked a lot with um, within the defense industry, looking at defense industry organizations who have a tremendous value on culture, but their idea of culture is not the same as somebody else's. If you go down to San Jose and you look at, I was not too long, I was in YouTube uh, before the lockdown, and it has a tremendous sense of fun and positivity to it. It's chrome, it's glass, it's well lit. Yeah. There's food everywhere. There's places to have a snooze. There's, I mean, everything is catered for from dry yeah. cleaning to dentists to dog care is yeah. all in one place to try and make it a very affable, positive culture. And that is a very strong cultural stamp. But the inverse is also, you can have very aggressive cultures, uh, financial trading companies, fintech right yeah. now, uh, the cryptocurrency markets, anybody working in those, it's a, it's still a very strong and stamped culture, but not in a sense of positivity. Uh, that aggression, that um, hunger is often communicated a little bit sharper. And that's still a valid culture. Culture doesn't have to mean something good or a nice place to be. It mm. just means a very defined way of performing. What we see now is... Uh, the fragmentation of culture, the main mechanism that we used to communicate culture with, which was uh, any sort of social interaction, any sort of social facilitation has gone. Um, the amount of companies that could have been virtual before the pandemic were phenomenal. I mean, yeah. I think that's been a big realization that just how yeah. unhelpful it often is to go into a physical bricks and mortar building. Um, the great equalizer was the pandemic because nobody, you know, Facebook didn't want to be a first mover. They didn't want to say to everybody, work from wherever you want. Yeah. Uh, and that wasn't just for tax reasons. It was also the practicality of if we're the first company that sends everybody home and says we don't need a physical space, that could be a massive strategic error. It could be on a basic level of productivity error. We could see a huge yeah. slump as people just work their way through box sets and box sets mm -hmm. of Netflix day by day. But when every single company had to do it at the same time, it became the great equalizer. It normalized yeah. it. So the risk was dissipated instantly for companies to say, we're going to send everybody home. And I already know of, anybody who's living in California knows of companies who said, we're not coming back ever. I mean, Twitter yeah. said, work from home for good. There's no need. Um, Uber have, have gone that direction. Pinterest are the same. Uh, Slack. Uh, you know, they've decided not to, uh, you know, take their offices up. There's nearly 3 million square feet of office space in San Francisco empty. And most of it on violated lease that people simply paid $30 million to get out of a lease because they're saying, well, we're not coming back. There's just no need anymore. Um, and that is the great equalizer. But it's also presented the great problem of we still have to hire 200, 300, 400 people this year. Um, and accordingly, how are they going to feel what Facebook feels like? How are they going to know what our small startup feels like when they can't physically come in, when they're not coming into an office and they're not met by the same physical stimuli, the same resources, the same, you know, free kitchens, free food, free dog care. They're not, they don't have all those things to create a positive sentiment of what culture is. Can you communicate that virtually? Um, and and the, the correct answer, by the way, 
uh, from an evidence point of view is that we, we don't know. We don't know the extent that you can communicate culture effectively virtually. Um, yeah. But that's important to say just because we don't have evidence doesn't mean it's not true. It's as they often say, you know, an absence of evidence is not evidence of absence. It simply means we don't yeah. have a sufficient body of work generated yet to know does that make a difference. But remember, there's there's companies that have been uh, hanging everything on presenteeism for years. Uh, Yahoo, very famously, uh, about five or six years ago, yeah. sent a memo out to everybody saying it's time to come home. Everybody come into work. Um, and they had some really, really broad assumptions built into that to say, look, work is important. It's where we have our spontaneous meetings. It's where we come up with good ideas. It's sitting beside somebody you haven't spoken to before and you come up with a great collaborative opportunity. Well, again, that focuses only on one side of the argument. They're all great things to say, yes, work is where the spontaneous arguments are, you know, discussions and creative ideas happen. But what's the evidence that they can't happen at home or they can't happen on a Zoom call or they can't happen while you're you know, out walking and talking to somebody. Um, and we don't have that, but we like the idea that they happen when we're all physically together. Yet we have a tremendous amount of evidence when we look at productivity at work that not being at work is incredibly productive. You know, yeah. people actually being able to work when they want, you know, the classic control mastery. Uh, when we have those over our work, we have greater degrees of productivity. But productivity is not culture. And that's the part that people are getting at is that the big, uh, the, the boogeyman about the pandemic was that all of a sudden productivity was going to dissipate the second everybody went home and worked how they wanted to work, when they wanted to work, where they wanted to work. That hasn't happened. Uh, it really hasn't happened. And that's not both colloquially, but also that's not something new from an evidence point of view to say that giving people the space to work where they want and when they want doesn't create an absence of productivity. In fact, it often creates an increase in productivity. How longitudinal that increase is, is up for discussion. But once that productivity conversation's over, you're still left with a culture conversation. You know, how do yeah. I feel part of a company? How do I feel valued? How do I have, you know, express or feel psychological safety about being a company or being yeah. part of a company? And you can't, we don't know where that's going yet, but um, it's definitely, pre and post pandemic organizations, you're going to have a generational rift in them. You're gonna have people who spent 10 years at Apple. Yeah. Um, and then there's the people who started their job at Apple, but have never physically gone into work. Yeah. Uh, that's going to be a very different work experience for, and there's people now who have been a year in organizations that they've never ever set foot in. And maybe yeah. not, might not set foot in for a year from now. Um, and that's going to be a fracture. That's going to be a different generation of people from how they remember what work used to look like and what work looks like now. And I'm not saying one of those is better or worse than the other, but the yeah. challenge comes to be, if you become so wed on the idea of culture, like we are this and we do things this way, well, hold on, are you, are you talking about the in-person work culture from a year ago? Or yeah. are you going to include however culture now manifests itself in people who live completely virtually in these organizations? So say now we're talking about virtual culture, right? And why that might be important because, for example, we're basically focused on a microculture, like our own team culture, yeah, which creates exactly. silos. So yep. the absence of culture then, you know, means that we're working more and more in silos. We're probably collaborating less from interdepartment or yeah. intercompany. And that means we're reducing collaboration then. Surely that's the absence we're talking about of productivity then because you're actually creating more conflict between departments or yeah. so what's, what's the, what's the, the evidence behind that? Well, there's two things there. I think and I challenge the assumptions that, um, you know, we have, yeah, we lost all these opportunities for collaboration that randomly would come across as we meet somebody in the hallway and so on. But again, we keep mistaking the idea that just because you collaborate with somebody doesn't mean it's a good idea. I mean, some of the worst ideas I've ever had have only come about when I'm with somebody talking about them, right? So yeah. just because it's a collaborative collective idea doesn't mean it's a good idea or productive idea. I mean, we yeah. come up with a lot of terrible ideas uh, when we put people in group. I mean, we've tons of social processes from group think to social facilitation that we know putting people in a room together to come up with ideas is not always the best of ideas. Yeah. And then the second part of that is um, the siloing argument is that, yeah, it, you do create silos, but... What we've become so focused on is this idea of a homogenous culture that we are yeah. we are company X. We believe in this. We do this. Yeah. This is how we do things. But the reality is that's never been true. It's never been true because if you're company X, a singular company, and, and you 
pick a random company, you know, like IBM, for example, you know, a blue chip giant in Silicon Valley and globally uh, kind yeah. of reinvented itself over and over and over again and somehow is still around. Um, you know, uh, a product development uh, office or group in San Jose in California is not going to be the same cultural experience as a product development company in Mumbai. It's just not mm. going to be. Uh, and that's got nothing to do with the culture of the company. It's got to do with the sociological culture, the demographic culture, the linguistic culture, the you know the societal values, the educational values. Yeah. And IBM have been be, remained flexible enough to know that the values that generate what we call IBM culture, we're not going to hold them as ones and zeros. We're not going to say, well, they all have to be uniform and they all have to be absolute. There mm. has to be a tolerance and flexibility that, culture can look like lots of different things to lots of different people, even in the same organization. And think yeah. of anybody who's listening to this, think about people who work in your specific organization, somebody in sales versus somebody in engineering. I mean, culturally, yeah. the, the input and experience they have of a specific organizational culture is radically different. One is, you know, sold with selling and tasking a product and getting it out there. And the other would arguably say, engineers would say, yeah, then we have to go and clean up and try and generate what sales have already sold that we can't actually make yet. They have different cultural experiences. The danger right now, I believe, and this is a yeah. personal belief, we'll talk about evidence in a moment, is that we've created the assumption that culture is monolithic, that there's a thing called culture for an organization. And if you yeah. deviate from that, then it's not culture. The problem I think lies with organizations need to become a lot more fluid with what culture actually means. Yeah. Uh, and by, by loosening that grip on people, it gives these teams and silos you speak about a lot more ownership of what their specific work behaviors are. Um, and they don't have to try and conform to something else that you know, at, at best of times pre-pandemic, they might not ever have witnessed. Um, and now definitely in the pandemic, they're not going to witness. At best, they'll hear about it. So it's about, I think, companies loosening the grip on culture and not fetishizing it so much. We put so much effort into, you know, saying we've got this fabulous culture. And, you know, a positive culture doesn't always manifest itself in organizational success or productivity. It's like satisfaction, you know, satisfied people yeah aren't productive people always. I mean, some of the most satisfied people I know are terrible at their jobs. Uh, and similarly, some of the most, you know, unmotivated people I know are incredibly productive at their jobs. It's, there's not a binary input of, you know, input output. I think that's culture needs to go that route as well. So Neil, we'll say, for example, because we're not in a physical environment now, okay, and we're yeah. working virtually now, does that mean that we should just focus on our team culture and our team values and you know see what happens from there to say if we're doing our best to meet those values maybe the collective uh, higher organizational culture will 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 grow from that if you want to call it that. yeah i think i think it's even it's along the right lines but i think the problem is is that we we're still focusing on the wrong thing we're kind of we're we're encouraging a and expecting b we're asking people to work remotely and have a, a hyper focus on these silos and, and, and microcultures, as you said, yeah. but somehow never to forget where they came from. But if you think about it, usually in pre-pandemic times, the only reason, the only way you knew where you were at work was you walked in, all walked in the same door and went through the same foyer. And then you went to a different floor and different office. Yeah. Um, and you might never cross paths again throughout the day. You, you were always in these teams. I think we like yeah. to believe that... You know, we didn't always used to work like this. We did. We just were, you know, we're not separated by a floor anymore. We're separated by hundreds or thousands of miles. Yeah. The focus should always have been on microcultures, but it's the culture, again, gets so much room in the conversation and not the behavior. Um, yeah. If you want to measure cultures, look at behaviors. It's what you do. Uh, and unless it's replicable and visible, uh, then it probably shouldn't be counted as culture. And that can range everything from like, you know, the language people use to speak to each other and the way you solicit ideas and the way you rank and value ideas, they're all cultural behaviors. Um, but they're going to be reinforced uh, by how well they're supported or punished in any small group. But again, waiting for this culture on high to somehow have a trickle-down effect for all of us yeah. to be on the same page is, is not going to happen. It was never going to happen. And a lot of the culture efforts organizations put in before was to try and overcome that siloing so that they could say, look, yeah. we're all part of the same place. We all eat together. We all, you know, attend the same massive meetings. 
So there's some sense of collective. We've lost the opportunity to do that. And I would challenge that in losing the opportunity, it's actually put a spotlight on the value that that actually brought to day-to-day life. Uh, Do people feel more connected to their companies or less connected to their companies um, in the absence of those cultural signifiers? Uh, We don't know yet. Um, You know, we we know that the data is always going to be, you know, skewed because nobody's leaving their jobs right now if they have them. Uh, and if you're leaving your job because, well, I just feel like the culture is not right for me, that's probably a much deeper reason. People might leave for economic reasons or uh, commuting reasons or whatever, but uh, culture is a little bit of a privileged perspective for organizational departure. And that's that's not to say people will leave because of values or something a company does they don't agree with, but it is going to be skewed data given the constricting economy, uh, you know, the, the uncertainty that's present right now in how organizations will look. We haven't seen layoffs. I mean, yeah. remember, we're, we're in uh, February of 2021 and Facebook, LinkedIn, Alphabet, and all subsidiaries of Google have not done any systematic layoffs. Yeah. Nobody's firing anybody. And that's a conscious decision as well. Nobody wants to be the first mover. Nobody wants to yeah. be the person that says, yeah, all those accommodations we made and all those things we did and ran together, we still need to look at a bottom line. So we have to let go of 150,000 people collectively across all those organizations. That would seem cold and heartless and, and aculturistic. So nobody wants to do that. Yeah. But that's going to come. That has to come at some point. There'll be a cultural correction where these values you know, manifest or reinvent themselves. There are companies that are doing that already, by the way. It's important to say, you look at a big industry, um, you know, Boeing have always had a very strong structure around how they look at values and they separate things like values and ethics and culture apart in how they onboard people and how they train people because they believe they're distinctively different entities. And there's lots of these kind of companies, they tend to be very big in size and in dollar volume are starting to shift towards a post-pandemic organizational culture to recognize, you know, just because we, we're not in the same room doesn't mean we we have to be, you know, different a different organization. And then there's other organizations that say, yeah, because we're not in a room, we do have to be a different organization. I mean, think about like hospitality is a great example. And, and yeah. you know, uh, the entire travel industry is completely changed. And accordingly, you'll see a cultural correction about how they frame and communicate their, their culture. So if we were to discuss this, then in a different light. So culture then was sometimes seen as this esoteric type thing. You, you couldn't put your finger on it, right? Yeah. And we're moving away from this collective values, the collective way of being to say, listen, what are my behaviors and what are the behaviors we all agree we're gonna, gonna do? And I think that's the thing that was always missing with cultures is how do we behave around here, that organization citizenship. Yeah. So so in terms of that, then, right, is the focus and this is where I'm going back to the microculture, should the focus be in performance management conversations in terms of when we link in together with our team that we're focused on what are our behaviors then? And so when we're giving feedback to people, that's an enabler of the, the, the culture at large more than anything else. But that's where the, is that where the evidence is going or yeah, is, is that just I'm- my take on it? It's, it's not even that it's going there. It's sort of, it's always been there. I mean, the idea of measuring culture is, it, you're right, culture is ephemeral. And, you know, anybody who's, anybody who's listening to this uh, and has, you know, earned a crust as a, uh, as a consultant, as a management consultant or any sort of external organizational consultant, you, you've all fallen back and rested on the, the beauty that is culture when you're talking to clients because culture is a, it's a panacea. Uh, culture is the greatest uh, the greatest problem and the greatest solution that any organization's ever had. Oh, you've got a crisis in your organization. Oh, you've got a cultural problem. You know, all oh, things are going really well. That's because of your culture. Um, and then, of course, the, the amount of times that you hear people offer a cultural correction as a solution, um, but also as a problem, is quite phenomenal. I mean, we, we, yeah. we blame culture with everything. If you don't have a good culture, it's because something happened in your culture. And the way you create a better culture is to change your culture. And honestly, people spend more time... Uh, in an existential crisis about what is my culture and where should it be going, that they it's a complete distraction from what actually are they doing. Um, and, and I do think that, you know, you say, is it time to, you know, put a focus back on? The focus never left. If you look at like performance management literature and you look at the evidence that we have around performance management is it's performance toward productivity. That's the measure of performance management, right? Yeah. And maybe as a secondary measure, like retention. So, you know, performance management does increase productivity for a majority of people um, and it does increase retention, but neither of those things have anything to do with culture. 
Um, you know, productivity is not a measure of culture. Retention is slightly a measure of culture. But as I say, you can skew a measure of culture with productivity or retention when you look at, you know, a bad economic environment. I mean, people are not going to leave jobs in a massive downturn, even if it's a dodgy or sketchy culture. They're not going to do that. And when they do leave it, is the measure going to reflect that that was a result of an absence of culture? Probably not. So, yeah, it's 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 not it's not time to come back to those things. It's that the attention was never really away from them, but we, we expected A and measure B. So yeah, performance management, you know, I have my own qualms of performance management because, you know, it tends to, performance management fi fixates a productivity output on that which the person doing the managing has put value on. So it makes the assumption that whoever's performance managing is managing in the right direction, that they know, they know that it's a purely a productivity-based thing. And what we don't want to have with conversations uh, around things like performance management and culture is, uh, you know, sometimes people get performance managed out the door, right? It's, uh, you know, I have to manage you out the door. So you, you can't cut it here. You're not making the, the grade. You're not doing so on. And everyone kind of immediately goes, that's a bad culture. Well, hold on. There's a such thing as positive turnover. There's a such thing as desirable turnover. That's yeah. how high performance teams work, right? Is that if you find by attraction, selection and attrition, that's not the right place for you, you're, you don't be part of that team. And ideally what you're left with is uh, a kind of a, a distilled version of people who can perform at that level, who want to perform at that level, who are rewarded by that performance management and anyone who's not can just go. That's desirable turnover, but that doesn't fit into a warm, fuzzy conversation around values and the culture yeah. and we value everyone. Well, no, we don't value everyone. If you're not producing, then you shouldn't be in this team. But that conversation would fall flat in its face if you had a performance management conversation in, say, sales and marketing versus if you had it in um, you know, employee assistance programs or, or loose level, say, HR. That wouldn't be the same performance management metric. So of course, we have to come back to the small, the micro, micro perspective, these micro cultures. And micro cultures are not a threat. Just because you do something differently uh, at, at a team level does not mean it's contradictory or violation or inflammatory at a different level. It actually reinforces it. Um, but we're so frightened about having anything other than a monolithic culture, we don't do it. And we don't learn from it. I mean, remember in 1999, you know, dot com one happened and Every single piece of managerial, if this, if this podcast had been, you know, back in 1999, you, you'd have been hearing people saying things like, it's important to know your product, know your market, and kind of stick to your knitting. That famous phrase by Peter Drucker, the management writer, said, stick to your knitting, know your product, and don't deviate from it. And then by the end of dot-com one, 2001, 2002, the only companies that had survived were the ones who didn't stick to their knitting, the ones who innovated and created their way out of a box and didn't have a hierarchical structure. And you know, were these companies that were running out of a, a basement somewhere with 12 employees, but with a market valuation of half a billion dollars. So they violated yeah. every single principle. And they were all accused at the time of having no culture, having no roots. Well, it's a bit rich to think that a singular culture was this monolithic culture. It didn't adapt fast enough to a market. Microculture, smaller perspectives on cultures, team cultures like the silos you're talking about, they're much more adaptable because they're not bound by we're all doing the same thing, going the same direction. It's yeah. fragmentation. The skill in an organization is to try and keep some coherence on those yeah. big messages, which is why, you know, you've seen a lot of big, big companies move away from cultural statements or value statements that are like three pages long. Yeah. And they're easy to write because they're, you know, they're accessible, they're narratives and so on. And you've had companies who, adopt a single word or a single phrase or a single example, or some companies are even doing pictures. Uh, and as, as touchy-feely as that might sound, the aim of it's pretty solid, which is to move away from a rule-bound culture of, of cultures to say, yeah. we do this, we believe this, we think this, we want this, you should want this. And they come and they give you a word or they give you a phrase, and then it's up to your specific team or your management team or your line manager or your silo or your work group to collectively define what that means to your work behaviors. That develops a degree of resiliency and makes the, the culture with a small c a lot more possessive to those people in the group. So what people might want is that, well, yes, all 185,000 Google employees all feel the exact same way. Well, that's nonsense. They don't. Yeah. They never would have. And that includes like contractors and, you know, non-binary gender people and people of color. No, of course, they don't all feel the same way, but they yeah. allow people to identify culturally at much lower levels. 
and that that creates the resilience they have. It's like uh, you might not might not be too familiar of an example for European audiences, uh, but uh, there's a huge uh, healthcare organization over here, Kaiser Permanente. It's one of the one of the biggest uh, private healthcare industry. In, I mean, gross market revenue of about thirty billion dollars a year. Yeah. Um, and their entire culture, they used to have an incredibly archaic, I call it, uh, cultural value system where it was articulated line by line, page by page. It genuinely was a handbook that looked like a phone book. But I realized recently when I said the word phone book, loads of people didn't know what a phone book was. So you might need to adjust that reference based on dates. But it was a very large volume of something. And they, um, they abandoned it, not threw it, out, threw it away, but they gave one word to their employees. And the word was thrive. And this yeah. was about eight, nine years ago. And they said, that's, that's, that's the cultural aim that we have here is thrive. And it became a marketing slogan. It became an advertisement. It became everything. Yeah. But it allowed employees, and remember their employees, their backroom insurance, their finance, their radiologists, their nurses, yeah. everybody inside this enormous organization, they choose how to identify to a single cultural value that is the word thrive. They interpret it. And then their behaviors at the micro or the silo level are reinforced, rewarded, or corrected. That That's... The direction we should be going this idea of creating these stable cultures is actually what's putting a lot of businesses out of business that they can stay relevant they can stay flexible so we say we example we choose a word it's open to interpretation yeah. and probably the reason what we identified at the start of the conversation here is the reason why we had culture at the forefront was really to attract attract talent yeah you know and it was really a differentiator to say listen this is how we we work here compared to your previous employment. And we talk about onboarding and the different challenges that are faced yeah. post-pandemic now. And so what we're saying now is we choose one word, you focus on your team, you know, but that still leaves, oh, I'm missing the collective piece in terms of the whole yeah. organization, doesn't it? So there's gaps still remaining. There's always going to be gaps. So I mean, the gaps were there before pandemics as well. I, I, I think the idea, you know, your question implicitly brings up a very, very kind of a hot point within culture, culture research and organizations, which is who is, I'm going to make air quotes instantly, but who is culture for? Yeah. You know, because is culture an outward facing concept that's there to attract other people? Uh, is it about uh, culture is something that your customers see? So it validates their membership of your organization or their use of your yeah. product, or is it purely internal? And it's interesting to know, like a lot of those, cultural frameworks about who is your culture for uh, are exactly the same questions you can ask around ethics in an organization. Who are ethics for? Are they about regulating the behaviors inside an organization or are yeah. they about validating the behaviors to people outside the organization? Um, yeah. and, and that's a decision that's so rarely made. The amount of times you have the conversation with people about specifically around ethics, which are a, a big component of a lot of organizations' cultural manifestos, um, you'll say, you know, so, so who are these for? Who are you writing these ethics statements for? And like, what, what, yeah. what do you mean? Well, hold on, these is going to be written for your employees. They're going to regulate the behaviors of employees, or are they yeah. going to rationalize and justify a purchase decision on the basis of your uh, um, your customers? Yeah. And they're like, well, both. And I was like, well, hold on, that's that's trying to do two very different things for two very different populations. Look at yeah. any B certified corporation. Look at these ethically certified cor corporations, and there's so many of them right now. Um, and they have a very clear view on, you know, the difference between internal ethics statements and external ethics statements, um, because they start to recognize that governing or and controlling is a dangerous word, but, you know, having influence over the behaviors, the moral behaviors, the ethical behaviors of your employees at work might not be the same narrative or language or meaning that you would use to communicate the same values external to the organization. Mm. Um, and, Could you and give me an example of that maybe? Yeah, for sure. So like, if you think about, um, it's, it's easy actually in purchase commodities. Um, uh, you know, there's a universally accepted one there. Also one of the first B corporations, Ben and Jerry's, okay? A yeah. big Unilever company now. They used to start off as a smaller company. But uh, their internal mechanism for ethics is about, um, you know, sort of a buck stops with you mentality. Um, and actually what's worth doing for your, for your listeners, I'll, I'll get their ethics statements, internal and external. I'll, I'll put links to them on your, uh, on your metadata here for the end of the yeah. podcast so you can see them. But they start to value the idea of if you say something, if you see something, say something inside the organization, you're the person who judges a job well done. Um, uh, you know, uh, work when you need to work, don't work when you feel you can't work. They're very regulatory. They're very 
human focus, very human centered around the morality of work, about doing good work. And if you do good work, they believe it'll translate into good product. Externally, their ethics statements are all focused on cost, customer value of, you know, we, we never do this. We'll always do this. We'll always use these products. We'll always certify our products. We'll never test on animals. Their assurances. So their ethics statements are about giving the purchaser comfort in going, I'm going to buy this because I, I align with these values. Internally, you know, you you might go to work for Ben and Jerry's because you really like ice cream. That's fine. But that's not going to be a requisite of doing good work there. So internally, mm -hmm. of course, they've recognized that you want autonomy over your, your work. You want control over the values of work. You want to decide when your work is good enough and not good enough. You want to be able to raise issues, problems and challenges free from hierarchy. That's got nothing to do with the purchase mentality. That's a commitment. That's a behavioral mentality. So separating those two things is really, really important on an ethics level. And it's also a lot more sensical because as you try and create that Venn diagram about what would be relevant to the customer and what would be relevant to the employee, and that's a really, really narrow Venn diagram to put together. And it actually doesn't benefit either of them very well. It's better to separate them. I think that we're getting to a point where organizations' cultural communication internally and externally need to be different. And when you do suggest that, uh, and I have suggested that to companies, they, they tend to have a, a whiplash effect of, hold on, that yeah, makes yeah. us sound like we're not clear on what our culture is. And it's like, no, not doing it makes you sound not clear on who you're talking to culture about. That's a yeah. massive, massive distinction. But in the past, we'd much rather have one message uh, that was uniform to everybody. But Th that makes less and less sense in uh, you know non-consumeristic perspectives. And you think about the the amount of organizations that you deal with uh, and that your listeners are part of that don't have customer-facing parts anymore. You know, mm. business to business stuff is huge. So all of a sudden, yeah, your customer is another business, but they're not approaching something like a, a you know a supermarket shelf mentality where they pick it off. They're going to you as a vendor, and by being unable to have these cultural conversations at lots of different levels uh, is, is really limiting their impact. And for me, and this is a good question to ask for you know, any of your listeners to ask, if you saw multiple cultural statements belonging to an organization, would that give you a reassurance of how much time they put into cultural thought? Or would it give you doubt that they're not clear on what they're thinking about? Uh, and they're both, there's no right answer there. They both fall on either side is that it depends on the company. And like you say about so much on this podcast, you know, context is key, right? The yeah. context of those things. If it's a 75-year-old company that's never had a negative quarter of growth and they have three different cultural statements, one's outward facing, one's customer focused, one's employee focused, well, they must be doing something right, right? That's proof of concept. Longevity yeah. is a good proof of concept. If it's a startup and they're in their third week and they've never made a dollar, and they have three different cultural statements. Well, some people instantly would go, they don't know what they're talking about. They haven't even gotten all on the same page. Well, yeah. I'd argue, well, hold on. They've gotten on three separate pages. And if you're in the first year of a startup and you've given enough time to write three pages, let alone one page on culture, it shows you're thinking about it. Because most startups, you know, it's, it's live or die in respect to funding uh, and products. Yeah. So again, the context is key. But I, I think the amount of, you know, uh, <laughs> I think if I was going to have a T-shirt or a bumper sticker around culture, be like, what has culture done for you lately? Because I think, again, in organizations, we're expected to give a huge amount of value to it as employees. Like, yeah. you know, oh, I really value the culture. I respect the culture. And yet we don't ever get an opportunity to say, well, why? What, what has it done for me? I mean, it's not, it's yeah. not done me any favors lately. Culture hasn't paid me. Culture hasn't, you know, given me a bonus. It doesn't give me two days off. You know, it's something that we all agree is important. But so are fire extinguishers. You know, you, you never yeah. know the fire extinguisher in your house till you have to use it. Um, yeah. and, and I think we could do with a, a sober conversation about what culture actually brings to the day-to-day -day behaviors of organizational performance. So let me distill this down. So, for example, we talked about culture here. And, like, a part of culture is you, you, you can't see it, but you know when you're in it, right? So it's how we celebrate, okay. how we reward, yeah. how we punish it's the unsaid, really, isn't it? Because if there's a culture of fear, then it's like, well, no, it's kind of hushed yeah. conversations, isn't it? Yeah. And that brings us down like the iceberg model. We have these kind of hygiene factors or culture yeah. artifacts going on. And then we go down to the detail. And then when we really focus in on that, it's really about morality and ethics. Yeah. Is that, what I'm, is that, is that where we're yeah, going in this conversation? I, I, it could be. I mean, the, 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 I'll answer the last part first. Is it about morality? I think culture has a, an ethical component to it. 
Uh, I think organizations need to be very front and center about communicating, be it internally or externally, you know, who, who they are on an ethical spectrum. You know, are we a company that supports GMO? Are we a company that, you know, is going to, you know, uh, delete a, an acre of a rainforest every 20 minutes to give you your product seven cents cheaper? Uh, you know, th they're important things to know about for a consumer, but also for an employee. Yeah. But <laughs> inversely, the problem also becomes when you talk about culture, is that it exists in this ephemeral idea. Like, you know, you, you, can't, you can't see it or touch it, but you know it's there. Well, think about that in the spectrum of any other conversation that you would have in an organization at a director level or C-suite level. Hey, I need a budget of 115 million this year. It's for cultural proponent development. It's for onboarding. It's for acculturation. It's for team building. 115 million. Okay, okay. And is this important? That's really important. It's great. Imagine... Imagine any other rectum say, we need 115 million for product development. Okay, well, what's the product? You're not going to see it. Well, what will it look like? No, no, you're not going to see it. You'll not even hear it. You won't even be able to touch it or smell it. Well, is it going to make us any money? We don't know. What do you mean you don't know? Well, it's 115 million I'm giving you. Well, it might make us money. Well, when might it make us money? Well, we don't know. It could be now. It could be 10 years from now. But it's really important. How quickly would product development be told, you're not getting 115 million? Actually, get out. Right? Yeah. But accordingly, we put 115 million, or, or even bigger. The biggest, the biggest uh, cultural development budget I've seen in the last two years was from a publicly traded company, and they had anticipated on spending 205 million US dollars on cultural development on for that year. So that's a fifth of a billion dollars on cultural development, um, and this is a, a profitable company um, in the social media sector that they were throwing this money at because they believed if they didn't, and this again is the great fallacy, if we don't spend that money, our competitors are, they're going to have a better culture, they're going to attract more talent, they're going to retain more talent, and we'll be lost. We can't not spend this money. And then again, the sober conversation is, you can't not spend the money on the thing that you don't know is having an effect on behaviors you're not measuring. But if you don't do it, you might lose out to other people who might also be spending the money. And the problem is it becomes an arms race of yeah. cultural development is that you can't not plow money into it publicly. And I mean, it has to be very loudly plowed into it. Um, and, and as a result, it, it creates, again, an emperor's new clothes point of view of, you know, being the first company to go like, is this culture stuff nonsense? I mean, are we really, have we all just been taken yeah. for a huge ride where we're spending fortunes building cultures, reaffirming cultures, re-emphasizing cultures, and we can't actually measure it or see it? Because if you measure by productivity, then you're measuring productivity. Yeah. If you measure by retention, you're just measuring retention and attrition. You're actually measuring culture. You're expecting to measure it, but you're not actually measuring it. But if we don't do it, it's a much greater harm. Of course. So, so the ultimate question comes down to like, if you're going to invest in culture, it needs not to be in the word culture. It needs to be in the behaviors that are going to support that culture. Yeah. So a huge way of doing that, and I know this podcast is hugely focused on practicality, right? Is that for anybody who's listening saying, you know, yeah, but, you know, we get small budgets, like at $50,000 on our 50,000 euros on, 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 you know, cultural development. It might not be called that, but it can be off-site yeah. stuff or onboarding yeah. or it can be team yeah. building or whatever it might be, facilitation stuff. Um, rather than look at it being an exercise in cultural development, why don't you look at it as an element of behavior? If you have reinforcements of behavior, remember the things we know about behavior consistently, behaviors are a function of people by environment. Yeah. Right? So if you have control of the environment, you, you know, you don't need that much control over the people and the behavior comes out. If you dictate the behavior and you've control over the environment and you haven't have gotten some decent people in the room, well, that's a much better, better measure of success or momentum. But instead, we go to some third rate hotel and eat dried out sandwiches for three days while we do a trust fall with people we don't trust. And then we go back to the office and decide, well, everything's better now. It's not. Yeah. But if you measure the behaviors, if you actually went away to say, Let's talk about, you know, uh, uh, narratives of innovation. How, how do we come up with ideas? How are ideas valued? Uh, how do we physically go through the concept of saying, I think we should do this, 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 and this. And people going, that's yeah. a terrible idea. That's a good idea. How do you actually break down the behaviors of how things are done around here? If mm. you can do that as a manager, then arguably you can measure them, but you also give employees something much more important than the ephemeral idea of a, a warm blanket that's wrapped around them called culture. You give them behaviors that you can then model. This is why the post-pandemic perspective on culture has to move towards behaviors because yeah. you don't have the luxury of having everyone in a room building 
you know, bridges out of spaghetti or whatever the most recent yeah. thing is, is because you have to focus on behaviors. A behavior can still exist in my room here and in your room there, even though we're 8,000 miles apart. Yeah. But culture doesn't combine us. It's not wrapping yeah. around us together in any shape or form. And that's a really difficult conversation to have for organizations right now because it means that they either feel like they have to recant yeah. all that money we spent on culture was nonsense, but that it doesn't have to be that language. Yeah. But it's a perfect time to change your conversation about how you create value and reward whatever this thing called culture is because everyone's having to do it. Just like I said at the start, remote working yeah. wasn't a risk for organizations because all of a sudden everyone had to do it. You lost your first mover advantage or disadvantage. Mm -hmm. Now is the chance to start to recognize if you have this ephemeral idea of culture, anchor it in behaviors. And remember, the beautiful part about this as a manager is you don't have to do any work. You let your line managers, you let your group managers, your team managers, these silos yeah. you talked about, Willie, let them figure out what does what are what are the things we do around here that embody yeah. who we are. That's a lot more communicable to somebody coming into your team that you can say, yeah. hey, every Friday we come together, we put all of our ideas on a board. By Monday, we've all had a chance to think about them. We pick the three best. I mean, that as a mechanism is a set of behaviors that reinforces that people have voice, that innovation is good. Uh, failed innovation is not punished. They're things that are tangible, both for the organization yeah. and for the employee, and they don't rely on the thing you can't see or can't touch. Or, and the worst part is for a lot of consultants and <laughs> a lot of financial consultants is uh, facilitation is all you need to do this. And you need to do it once, then you walk away. So it's the worst consultancy gig ever, right? <laughs> You're speaking my language because that's what I do is facilitation. I cannot go into a culture and say, listen, this is what you're going to do. You're the experts on your own behavior. Exactly. Yeah. So for me, for me, you know, it's about like what I'm really interested in is, is capturing a lot of my interests, you know, in this podcast. But the reason I'm interested in them is because they're all interconnected. So the yeah. reason I'm into a, into leadership development and high performance teams is because my own experiences weren't the best and I thought there would be a better way then when I started thinking about you know developing teams I realized that conflict was a big problem yeah. in organizations and communication so that's why I went into cross-cultural communication and and team dynamics but also then going into organization design is sometimes this the the way you're structured, your systems are set up. Absolutely. It's it's thrown out all these these things there. So for me, then it's about marrying organization design with mediation, with leadership development, that personal insight. So then you're providing people with the resources, the enablers, and it's really about having those internal facilitators, your leadership style then to create that culture. But it goes down to, are we all on the same page with ethics? Yeah with values and that morality? And then do we have the mechanisms in place to say, listen, if we have a conflict, how do we do that? A lot of stuff just and, goes and under the course, table. I mean, you, you know this from, you know, conflict mediation resolution is like, the usual conversation is no, we don't talk about conflicts. Well, that's, that's the problem. Then you, you know, you're, it doesn't become a positive catalyst in any shape or form. I mean, the best yeah. ideas come out of the worst arguments, right? Yeah. And if you can't manage what those arguments look like, but all, all these things really feed back into the idea that this is the opportunity. And this isn't a silver lining and a cloud, right? This no. isn't being on yeah. fire and saying, Oh, at least I'm warm. It's, it's saying that there's everybody's going through these mechanisms right now. And if you're not taking advantage of exploring what happens if we, uh, you know, throw out some of the old assumptions, you don't have to delete your old culture. You don't have to say it doesn't exist yeah. anymore. You just relinquish some of the control and effort and energy you put into it so that people have an opportunity to actually create one that's meaningful for them. I mean, you know, I, I, I'll be teaching this week and I'm talking to, you know, 26 and 30 students virtually in classrooms. They're spread over countries and, and yeah. everywhere. And, um, you know, one of the first things they do is create this charter of netiquette about what actually works in an online classroom. You know, do you raise yeah. your hand? Do you everyone type everything in the chat box, whatever it would be? And these small degrees of empowerment around how things get done create some sense of buy-in. And that's only in a classroom that's temporal, that's going to be gone in eight weeks. Why aren't we using this advantage, this, this period of time where everybody's going through the same reset button to start to look at assumptions like, culture and it, it, you, you hear phrases like you know you can't describe it but you know you see it that's what uh, that's what's allowed it to perpetuate for so long in this really vague sentiment it's never become anchored in behaviors and when you anchor in behaviors it was a lot more useful and that is the big answer to the question of like how am i going to onboard people who've never been to our business who's never been to our bricks and mortar how am i going to take new graduate students and bring them in 
show them behaviors that are concurrent to the group that they're working with, show them what's valued, show them what's not valued, reinforce the values, punish the negatively, you know, the, 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 the kind of contradictory ones, encourage conflict. All these are simple behavioral outputs that answer the question of how do you create culture. You can't answer the question of how do you create a monolithic, you can't, you can't culturize 70,000 people online. Yeah. You can't do it because, and that's not to say that you don't have the skills to do it. It's that even the thing you achieve is just going to be people saying, yeah, we all see the same thing, but they don't because they might yeah. see it, but they're not going to behave. It's not going to convert to tangible yeah. tactile behaviors. And it's down to interpretation then as well. So yeah. we're focused then, Neil, here on being very practical. Right. So it's we talked about for management. It's about time it became practical. It's gotten a lot a long way without doing much for a lot of people, you know. <laughs> and you sit on a board in the Center for Evidence-Based Management in the University of Amsterdam. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Forget, sorry, of evidence-based management, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And so you sit on it as part of your role there. And you were saying then earlier on from a practical point of view, there's certain resources, certain questions then yeah. that people might have in terms of well. How do we operate? What is the evidence in terms of what works? You know, that you talked about science work and it's about real answers to real yeah. questions. You know, the, so, the, so the, time, if, the time for evidence-based perspectives has never been more than now. I mean, you know, in a vacuum like this where people don't have answers, fads take hold. Yeah. Uh, um, that's where people jump towards. There's quick fixes, easy solutions, things like that. That's where everyone's running towards right now. And good God, I mean, if you didn't have a conscience uh, and you had... Um, uh, and you had a consultancy right now, there's a tremendous, a lot of very scared people out there that yeah. are looking for any answer, not necessarily the right answer, just any answer that looks different to the other answers they've gotten. Um, and, you know, it's a bit, it sounds a bit evangelical, but, you know, and I have a very small role in that superb place that is the Center for Evidence-Based Management. Uh, and it's housed at the University of Amsterdam. It's also in concurrence with Carnegie Mellon uh, University over in Pittsburgh in the States. Uh, and they have this radical idea of, hey, let's only let's only encourage management and organizations to do that which we have a tangible body of research to support. Um, and that makes a difference from there's an academic paper that says this is good to there is a collective body of research when put under scrutiny shows that doing this over doing that has a better outcome on these measures. Um, and as is the case of periods of panic and fads, uh, people want the fix more than they want the, the answer. Um, yeah. And the truth is uh, there's never been a time in history that there's been more evidence at hand for managers um, and for organizations. And yet there's never a time it's been used the least because it's seen as excessively burdensome and not novel. And we've got a tremendous problem right now in organizations about novelty. Something novel has a better validity than something useful. And that's the truth. Yeah. We want something different, not necessarily something that works. Yeah. Um, and, uh, you know, I'd encourage all your listeners to, you know, point themselves towards sebma.org, C-E-B-M-A.org. I'll give you the links again for your metadata. But, uh, uh, yeah, it's a tremendous resource of practical questions, systematic reviews, rapid evidence assessments around some really common managerial questions about, you know, the best way to hire people, systematic reviews, questionnaires, do focus groups actually have an effect on productivity, uh, team building, all these things, really, really honest questions that have very, unfortunately, honest answers that are quite contradictory. Um and uh, if nothing else, it should orientate people towards a view of looking at what role academia can play uh, and university education and, and, and research can play in managerial decision making. Because to be honest, for very long, the answer has been not very much. Um, yeah. You know, we tend to move at glacial and geological speeds. And then what we generate is usually an answer that says we need more research, which is yeah. really hard for a manager to read on a Friday and go in and do something on a Monday with. Um, yeah. There's now a much greater movement um, in places like Center for Evidence-Based Management, but also I'd encourage people like Science for Work is an organization that's doing incredible open source work on practical uh, answers to practical managerial questions. The only caveat all that comes with is sometimes managers will not like the answers because they contradict everything that they've either been doing or have learned. Uh, but that's a whole other conversation of whether or not you're uh, willing to incorporate new information into old behaviors. So I'm going to I'm going to open myself up for contradiction right here, right? So because I have a personal belief about yeah. working in groups. So working with groups online. So this is just a, a thing for me because a lot of people that might be listening here might be facilitators as well. Right. How how big is too big of a group? <laughs> I'm going to turn it back to you. What's the context? What's the group doing? 
If it's exactly. uh, if it's a discursive point of view, like I have a rule about meetings that um, I, I should hold up more often. Uh, you know, I, I have three rules about a meeting. I, I won't go to a meeting that doesn't have an agenda. Uh, uh, that I, that people haven't had a chance to put something into, like an agenda four minutes beforehand. That's not an yeah. agenda. That's that's a manifesto. Um, uh, the second thing is, I, I won't go to a, a meeting that uh, doesn't uh, that that isn't is doing anything discursive. Decisions yeah. decisions are what meetings are about. It should be people to make decisions, and I won't attend a meeting that doesn't have all the decision making capability in that meeting. Yeah, and uh, those three things I'd say have gotten me out of about eighty percent of meetings. It's a pretty good trick if you want, and it sounds really valuable. Like you know, I have these yeah. three rules. People go, "Oh yeah, okay," and then when they look, the three rules are quite practical. But it means that those people usually don't ever invite you to their meetings, and if they do, it's a really functional meeting because uh, facilitation is exactly that. Um, you know, for discussion, I, I think virtual forums are appalling for discussion. Yeah, and they're terrible. I would much rather uh, a document be sent out, um, you know, and, and pick pick your sharing focuses at a Google Doc or a Dropbox or whatever you want to use, where it gives people a chance to read, to comment, yeah. to incorporate, and then to have a moderator or facilitator uh, yeah. bring together those uh, questions that come together into a systematic element. Say, now here are the questions that arose from the document that all of you have read, uh, or that in reality six of you have read, and then. Uh, from that, those questions become the new set of questions that you then refine and answer the question. And then ultimately you end up with a question that has a decision to be made to it. And then you can hit the schedule button and then you can invite all those people and go, what are we doing? Yes, no, maybe, whatever it might be. That's that's one type of facilitation. I think that's the only way yeah. you can do any broad spectrum conversations yeah. on, on social media or so on digital or virtual media. Yeah. Remember, one of the most enlightening things, I went to Nokia in Finland many years ago, and they had, uh, had a ruthless view about meetings that I just I absolutely loved, which was um, <clears throat> if you called a meeting, you had to be able to rationalize and justify every single person that was invited to that meeting. Yeah. Uh, and the way they did that was by costing. So they worked out that if you were going to bring somebody that was a, a, you know, a VP level or director level in, that was going to be about a, you know, anywhere between an $800 and $1,000 hour. So very yeah. quickly, your meeting all of a sudden costed out. And this is a $35,000 meeting. Are you sure you need to have this meeting? And the amount of times that once you did this, and as you add people's names to the meeting opportunity, it gave a cost. It showed yeah. that if they're sitting in this meeting for an hour, this is an hour of work they're not doing somewhere else. That's how much that hour of work costs the organization. And very rapidly, it stopped people you know, bringing 30 people into an email or into a, a, a meeting that would have like a $150,000 bill if it was in the real world. And people got very, very humble and refined their questions. Like the phrase, we need to talk about never appeared. Or this is a meeting to discuss never appeared because that was an expensive bloody meeting, totally metaphorically, like they weren't actually paying the money. But similarly, if, uh, if it is uh, a meeting about like a personnel issue or it's a coaching issue or so on, Virtual media are great. People are comfortable. They're predictive. They're in their environments yeah. they want to be in. They're receptive to it. It's less threatening. They're yeah. brilliant. It's an excellent medium for it. But if it's something like idea generation or, God forbid, the word brainstorming, then virtual media are terrible because there's no flow to it. It has yeah. to be mediated and moderated. And, you know, I know a lot of companies I know now are bringing in professional moderators and mediators just for that yeah. because yeah. they say what we like is it's divorced from the the cultural assimilation of of our company because you get yeah. people like i know if these companies you know, we all start we start with food and then we do a check-in and ask how everyone's weekend yeah. was and a mediator will come in and go the question on hand is this you've each got three minutes we're going to talk about this these are the points yeah. by the end of this meeting we'll have these three things that is so refreshing and such an effective mechanism uh for for virtual stuff that many people are outsourcing it and also the joy of it is you have you know you have somebody who kind of doesn't care about your role or authority in a specific meeting they're there to facilitate the meeting and yeah. whether or not you're the grumpy one or the aggressive one or the the one of the longest tenure there nobody cares because this yeah. person has come in and it's a great equalizer i can't encourage people enough to start using digital and virtual moderation in meetings uh bring in an outsider to do it you won't believe the change in efficiency you won't believe Me it You'll have to give me your Revolut details so I can fire over some money to you. Fair play to you. <laughs> <laughs> and the other thing you should know is if you think any of that was given so that Willie gets a, a, a cent or a penny out of this, you don't know me at all. You know, I'd actively go out of my way to make sure his his, uh, his children don't have shoes in their feet. But that's that's another conversation. But no, it's true. It's, and, and if you haven't used them, 
if you haven't used digital facilitation or virtual facilitation, um, it sobers everybody's game up because all of yeah. a sudden your dirty laundry's on display. So if you say yeah. to somebody, we're having a meeting on Friday, will you, will you facilitate it? Then they'll say, where's your agenda? They'll send the agenda out, contributions to the agenda, refinement yeah. to the agenda. Hold on, I, I don't have any of these documents that people have to review. They've got two days to review them. I don't think this meeting should happen if you've got two days to review 170 pages of documents. It really sharpens everyone's game. It absolutely yeah. does. And you don't fall into any of the old habits of meeting stuff. You know, I, have a, I, have, I bought 150 little ribbons online because um, nobody does useless meetings like academia. And I'm totally aware this is recorded and online and I can say that like nobody does useless meetings better than academia. Uh, and uh, <laughs> my little ribbons say, uh, congratulations, you just survived a meeting that should have been an email. Um, <laughs> and I started to give these out to people. I thought it was hilarious. Uh, other people didn't, but it did reduce the amount of nonsensical meetings we have. Um, so yeah, I think that that's, that's the big thing, the big right now. I mean, you talk about takeaways and uh, on, yeah. on your board. Uh, if you're not using it, do. Um, uh, I've even started using it. Uh, I, I outsource to somebody if I have to have meetings, um, not not within a university setting. If I have consulting meetings or whatever, I bring in a third party because it also takes it off my plate and it keeps me honest. Yeah. But the efficiency is just astonishing. It changes yeah. everybody's attitude. Because like when we're honest, we're working in the period where we're you know in pajamas from kind of the waist down. It yeah. changes a lot of people's attitudes towards towards meetings at the best of times. And so is there other takeaways? Because we're near the end of our yeah. podcast here, Neil. So is there other takeaways then? So you mentioned science work and the... Uh, work, the I mean, an, a, a lunchtime with a sandwich in one hand, clicking those through those two websites will just change so much of your thinking or at least open up your thinking to, you know, what you might be doing differently or you've been doing counterproductively for a long, long time. That's a great point. I think if you're if you're involved in the cultural realm, realm start thinking in behavior, stop fearing this monolithic perspective of our culture is eroding. It's not. It's still there. Remember, cultures don't erode. They evolve. They just change to be what they are. And the more you try and keep them the same, the more rigid they become, the easier they tumble. Um, uh, and then the other takeaway I think right now that's happening is that there's a, a tremendous um, second mover anxiety that exists in people that yeah. if you're not doing something new or different or radical from an organizational point of view, you're you're missing out on something. It's, it's actually the opposite. I think getting away from the idea that something new is necessarily something good is yeah. a real problem. And I think that panic exists in like, you know, a dipping market and a restricted market and bad economic runs and unemployment rates and all that sort of stuff. Organizations are going, we need to innovate. We need to do something different and new. Different and new are two very different words. And the language that people use right now around innovation is really quite dangerous because they'll they'll take on something new just because it's new. And just yeah. because other companies are doing it and touting it doesn't mean it's positive. There needs to be a sobriety. There needs to be a return down to, you know, basic behaviors. Uh, I would say if you're a small to medium-sized enterprise right now, specifically you're working in the Eurozone, uh, focus absolutely 100% on retention. Yeah. Uh, if you've got employees that are showing up and that are performing, not hyper-perform, performing, yeah. efforts need to be put towards retention. The greatest crisis you can have right now is turnover, un undesirable turnover, because there is desirable yeah. turnover. You do want some people to go away. Yeah. But uh, trying to recruit right now is incredibly challenging globally because you don't really know who you're recruiting. So the opportunity of having to have a an onboarding of somebody who's joining in a post-pandemic virtual environment mm. is not a bad thing, but it is a risk. And it's a risk if you're if you're replacing somebody in a hurry, which is usually what happens with turnover. So I would say if you're happy with your team, you need to be diverting a lot of efforts and resources to retention. And whatever that looks like in your realm or your context, your business, if that's salary or compensation or uh, non-monetary rewards, hold on to the people you have right now. Not because new people are a pain, but because the cost, the switching cost is more is higher than it's ever been. And then the other thing is fadism, is that they're, everyone's going through the same misery. There's no quick fixes right now. And the people who yeah. are selling them are selling just that. It's, it's, you know, they'll, be, they'll be moved on to the next thing by the time you come around. It really is. It sounds very pedestrian, but it's time to go back to the basics. It's really, you know, eat your vegetables rather than your dessert. You might want to feel like you want to do something new and innovative and creative and take advantage of a wave. Um, but it's a time about really making sure you've got the basics taken care of. And things like, you know, 
uh, allowing teams to create charters, uh, you know, having discussions about, uh, you know, what culture means on a behavioral level. They're all things that are time well spent rather than, you know, deciding you're going to invest everything in your company into Bitcoin all of a sudden because that's what everyone else is doing. Um, yeah, and that'd be my takeaways. I tend not to yeah. give advice because it's always bad, Willie. So, <laughs> yeah. well, well, thank you for those wide words and and, and those uh, those key takeaways. So, Neil, if people were to get in contact with you, how might they do so? There's lots of different ways. Uh, I, I think at this stage, uh, I'm I'm so disliked. If you Google Neil and Walsh, then you'll find me straight away on Google. Uh, you can find me at the University of San Francisco. Uh, that's uh, usfca.edu. Uh, you can also look at neilwalsh.com. I'm there and you'll find all the social tags and other ways to uh, follow my very shallow life uh, all through there. Uh, again, I'd encourage people as well. I'll put the tags up for you for Center of Evidence-Based Management, Science for Work. And take a look at what other people are doing right now in the realm of research. Uh, there's some really exciting stuff happening. The pandemic research is starting to come out now where you're starting to see things about productivity. And a lot of it is very counterintuitive. Things aren't as bad as people want them to be. Um, so thanks for that. And, and it's Neil Walsh with an E, I must tell people, just in it case. Is. Yes, you can, of course. Yeah, I've been called worse. But yeah, your Walsh with an E is a helpful one. Yeah. And, and speaking of being called uh, worse, uh, we had different nicknames for each other at school and it's, stuff like that. I'm not going to go into that, but I do want to call out to anybody that we were in school with in Kloshta Ignaj, in the jazz in Galway, I want to give a big shout out to because I know people will, will do that. And... On behalf of myself and Neil, Miss Madden, we're really sorry about how we behaved in class. We ruined your whole German class. It was terrible. (laughs) So that's it for the Workplace Podcast today. My very thanks to Neil Walsh. It's great. We haven't spoken to each other, I'd say, in 10 years, maybe longer. More than that, Willie, yeah. Mm, But yes, a good good catch up. Mm. Yeah, so thanks for that. And thanks for coming on to the Workplace Podcast. My pleasure. And the best to all your listeners and yourself, Willie. All the best. Bye-bye. That's it for this episode of the Workplace Podcast. My special thanks to this week's guest for a wonderful discussion. If you want to get in contact with a podcast about a workplace topic or a particular challenge that you're facing, contact me via Twitter at Different Paths. You can also connect with me on LinkedIn, William Corless, C-O-R-L-E-S-S, or go to my website, www.yellowwood.ie. Yellowwood your external learning and development partner. Provide your executive coaching, facilitation and training. Take a different path to success with your career, leadership, team and organization.